Good morning. The first passage is from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And the second one, the second reading is from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you, Michelle. <clears throat> well, if you are a bit shocked <laughs> to see a woman up here preaching, so am I. <laughs> I have moved forward in this invitation cautiously. And I appreciate the words George shared before I came up here. I appreciate that the elders took the time um, before I came up here to visit all the different house churches and comment. If you're like me, um, there's a couple of verses that would have been obstacles to overcome to understand how a woman could be preaching. And so those two verses I have up here, and again, I think the elders, do I need to do something different, move from that thing? I think the elders did a good job and had solid scholarship and study on the interpretation of these verses. So in 1 Corinthians, the second one I have there, it says that um, a woman should, is not permitted to speak, um, and then in verse 35, it says for it's, a, it's shameful for a woman to speak in the church. However, you may be familiar with 1 Corinthians 11 that says, 
when a woman is praying or prophesizing in the public gathering, she needs to have a sign of authority on her head. So that would seem to contradict, like, okay, 14, it's saying she shouldn't talk, but then in 11, it's saying when she does pray or prophesize, prophesy is to convey the truth of God's word, that when she does that, she needs to have a sign of authority on her head. So if we're going to make sense of those two verses, it would make sense that 14, and if you look at what's around 14, and if you know the Corinth church, it was just a little bit struggling with um, confusion. They were not building each other up. They were not united. They were not edifying each other. Instead, they were sort of using their gifts for their own uh, attention. And so that is the time when, it's, when the public gathering of God's household is confusing and chaotic and more like a three-ring circus than a time of glorifying God. That's a time for the women to step back and to be silent and let the authoritative leadership um, step in. And then that first Timothy passage where it says, I want a wo woman to learn quietly and she's not permitted to teach or exercise authority. There's been good scholarship. Um, and a lot of the books that George posted on the realm, I would recommend reading if you want to look more into these verses. Um, but those two, the scholarship, um, those is that the Greek, those two verbs to teach or exercise authority go together. And it's connoting one term, not to have authority. So we can see that these verses are not so much to prohibit women from public ministry, but to regulate public ministry. And that women, when women are in public ministry, they should not be in the authoritative leadership positions. Um, again, the elders have done good scholarship on this. George Post-it, um, some great books that the ministry team and the elders went through, and I would highly recommend those. The Kathy Keller, it's a very short booklet, discusses these two verses specifically. Kathy Keller has her master's in theology from Gordon-Conwell. She's the co-founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City alongside of her husband, Tim Keller. Um, another good one that's also on that reading list is by Michelle Lee Barnwell. Um, I think her book is neither egalitarian nor complementarian. Um, she has her PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and uh, she's an associate professor of theology at Biola University. And then the last one that I would recommend is by a man named Philip Payne. He actually spoke and presented on those verbs in 1 Timothy 2 to the Evangelical Theo Theological Society on how those two verbs are really one. So again, um, I think if you have more questions or um, discussion on those, I would refer to those books to look more into that, as well as talking to the elders, like George mentioned. But again, I want to give my thanks and appreciation to the elders. I hope, church, you realize that church leadership is taking a stance, not just in words, but in action as well, that women, you have gifts that are needed in the church, and I really appreciate that. Um, I also have to thank my husband because he's the one who really encouraged me to come alongside him and study the word um, in classes and in different venues right alongside with him. So, um, Well, today we are going to be looking at what does it mean to be created in the image of God female. 
what does it mean to be female? But before I get in too far, let me pray real quick. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that my words would be glorifying and honoring to you. I pray that what I share would be edifying for the common good of our local church body. And it's through Jesus, my advocate, our advocate, I pray. Amen. Okay, so again, what does it mean to be female? So when I was preparing for today, I was thinking through, okay, if I'm going to share with someone what it means to be female, it seems like the logical place to go would be genetics. Being a former biochemist, I like science. It's, you know, you've got nice empirical evidence. It seems safer than emotions and some of the social softer sciences. So genetics. So just a quick, short high school biology review. One of my children told me, Mom, this is really boring, and only you like it because you're a science teacher, so I promise I will be brief. So if you don't remember from high school biology, you have 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, 22 are what they call autosomal. Josh can jump in here anytime. <laughs> 22 are autosomal, meaning that they're non-sex. They don't have anything to do with your biological gender. One, one pair determines your biological gender. So most women, not all, there's a few exceptions per thousand, but most women will be 46XX, and, 40, and most men will be 46XY. I'll again save you with all the exceptions, but if you have questions, I'd be happy to field them during the discussion time. But if you look according to the World Health Organization, it says that a purse, although a person's sex is determined by biology, genetics, gender is a social construction. So I thought, okay, maybe we would do better to look to culture then, and not to genetics, since it's called a social construction. Um, typically, generally, gender is referred in two binary terms, masculinity and femininity. And when I thought, okay, if I'm gonna think through what it means to be female, probably the best starting place would be American culture because that's where we all happen to be living right now. And if we maybe look back over the last couple hundred years, what can we learn about gender identity through culture? So the ministry team actually read a book, um, that one by Michelle Lee Barnwell that I was um, mentioning earlier. Um, and she said that if we go to like, just after the Civil War, mid-1800s, the feminine nature was actually considered morally superior uh, to men. Therefore, it was considered the woman's responsibility to raise virtuous members of her household and to also look to the larger household of the world and help society be a virtuous, moral society, especially if you think of, you know, turn of the century, rapidly changing country, it was a woman's responsibility to use her virtue to help impact society. Therefore, many American evangelical women were involved outside of their immediate home in missions and social reforms. But then, if we fast forward to World War II, right? We just had two world wars. We had a lot of devastation, a lot of atrocities from World War II, and the shift and focus for women changed. It changed from the larger society to her immediate nuclear family. More emphasis was placed on child-rearing, more priority was placed on marriage over careers, and women concentrated on their 
own homes, and they didn't see so much as a duty to that larger society of the world, more emphasis on the immediate family. And I think many of us today may be reacting to the overemphasis played on the nuclear family 1950s onward. It's probably some of the fuel for some feminist movements. However, I think we have to recognize that it's understandable that women in society might have wanted to do that. Two world wars just devastated our country and the world in general. And you can see where women and society maybe just wanted to create a one place where they could ensure, maybe they couldn't control all of society and culture in the world, but maybe just one place, their home, they could ensure was a place of safety and comfort for their children and themselves and their spouse and their loved ones. So that's just a quick uh, overview. One country where we are living now, last couple hundred years, but you can see culture is responding to circumstances and, and events. So that didn't make me feel real confident that I should look to culture to define what is female, because it's responsive, it's changing to circumstances. And I thought, well, maybe we should look at some exceptions. So there's three exceptions that I know of that I think are um, established to that general femininity and masculinity. So there's the Burdash tradition. If you've heard of the Burdash tradition, it's a tradition of Native Americans where a person born of one biological sex will take on the dress and social duties of the opposite sex. So that means a biological male, 46XY, will take on the dress and social duties of women. That was more common. There were a few exceptions where a biological female may take on the dress and social duties of a male. Trad or one hypothesis on why this happened is because perhaps with some tribal customs, one gender could not take on property or certain roles, and so therefore that gender would choose to take on the opposite dress and roles of the opposite gender. There's other hypotheses as well, but I think more noteworthy is that this was not attached to same-sex attraction, sexual orientation, or any homosexual activity. So it was, in fact, if a man chose to take on the dress and social duties of a woman, he would still marry and have a family with a biological woman. And then similar to the Burdash tradition is the Fa Afafine in the Polynesian Pacific. And this is where a family, parents, would identify one of their boys to take on the dress and social duties of a female. And it was not, again, like the Burdash tradition, it was not because the boy was effeminate or showed any homosexual inclination. It was because there were too many boys in the family and the female mother was overwhelmed and needed help with her social duties and responsibilities. And so they would choose to have them identified as fa'afafine. Now, modern, what I understand, in modern times that has evolved. And now today, an effeminate male, or if he has same-sex attraction, may choose to identify himself as fa'afafine. But traditionally, it was due to needing gender support. And then the last one that I've heard of is um, katuye. 
in Thailand, that's a more modern one. And this one, unlike the traditional Fa, Fafine, and Burdash tradition, it is attached to same-sex attraction, so it's a transgender woman or an effeminate gay male, and it's seen as a third gender. So again, as I just, okay, look in our country, last couple hundred years, what is culture teaching me about what it means to be female? Look at some exceptions. I don't feel confident that culture can teach me what it means to be female. If my daughters say to me, or a young woman or an, any woman says to me, what do you think it really means to be female? I don't feel confident in culture because I see culture responding to circumstances, to wars, gender, tribal traditions. Culture isn't evil, and we can choose to reject culture if we want. We can choose to try to engage and redeem culture. We can choose to try to reassemble culture. Um, but in the end, it only gives us reactions to our situations. So I thought, here's a novel idea. Maybe we'll go to the Bible. But again, I'm kind of a questioner. I'm kind of like, why? Why would I with confidence say to someone, go to the Bible to find out what it means to be female? I don't know, maybe there's a little bit in me that I feel like it's cheating, or I feel like it's too much of a pat answer, or too trite. But then it hit me. It really did hit me. I was like reflecting and praying on this. I was like, oh my goodness, 1 Corinthians 15, which is what John mentioned before he sang. 1 Corinthians 15 mentions the resurrection. I love the resurrection, but when I was reading through Corinthians, remember I just mentioned 1 Corinthians 14 about women being quiet and 1 Corinthians 11, that if she is going to pray or prophesy, she needs to have her head covered. Okay, so Paul is basically, if you know the letter to the Corinthians, right, they're having trouble being united. They're not edifying each other. By chapter 11, he's giving them principles and precepts on how they ought to act in public gatherings. So he says, okay, when a woman prays or prophesies, she needs to have a sign to show authority. Then these are the principles and precepts for how you ought to take the Lord's Supper. And then this is how you ought not to be abusing speaking in tongues. And he talks some more about gifts, and then he goes into 14, and he's like, and when everybody's saying their gifts and it's being chaotic and confusing, that's a time for authoritative leadership to step in. And then right after that, 1 Corinthians 35, 14, 35, that's when Paul mentions the resurrection. And I was like, okay, I'm just not following your logical sequence, Paul. You've got all these principles and precepts for how we ought to act to be united and edify one another in public gatherings, and then you jump to the resurrection. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, that which I received of first importance, I passed on to you. That Jesus took on flesh, and he walked among us, and he lived among us, and he died, and he rose again, and then he appeared to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to over 500 people. And then it hit me what this has to do, what the resurrection has to do with the principles and precepts of public gatherings. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're pitiful. We are the most pitiful people. Don't do anything I'm saying on how to take the Lord's Supper or when a woman prays or prophesies, because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, it doesn't matter. However, if Jesus did raise from the dead, then all of this matters. That's why I show respect for authority if I pray or prophesize in public. That's why I take the Lord's Supper a certain way. That's why I don't abuse giftings that we've been given from the Lord, because Jesus did raise 
from the dead. So let's look to Genesis, which Michelle read, um, to find out what, with confidence what it means to be female. So again, Michelle read these verses, and we can see from those verses that we are God's image bearers. We were created in the image of God to reflect him. Nothing else in God's beautiful creation says that it was created to reflect God's image, except for humans. So part of being created in the image of God is to be human. And if you look actually at this translation that I have up here, this is by a man named Robert Alter. He's actually a Hebrew scholar. And so he translated from the Hebrew into English what he thought would best reflect the Hebrew. Um, his book is called The Five Books of Moses. And so he translates what your English Bible probably translates as the man or Adam, starting on day six, 126, up into the middle of chapter two. He translates that as human. And he translates, well, he says, first of all, that it can't be Adam. So sometimes most translations like ESV that I have, it'll kind of oscillate back and forth between Adam and the man. But first of all, he says it can't be a proper name, Adam. So the Hebrew word is actually Adam but it has the definite article, the word the, in front of it. So that doesn't make any sense, because we don't say the Adam. We don't say the Deirdre, the Samuel, the Mary. So it can't be Adam. And then he said the term Adam actually is fuller than just one man. It's not like something unisex or androgynous. It's not weird like that. It's just humanity, humankind. So he translates it as, and God said, let us make a human in our image, in our likeness. And then down to 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There is community in the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's community. There's community in humanity as well. As well. Humans are two in one, male and female. And so part of what it means to be human, what it means to be a female, is we are created for community. We are not created to be alone. We are not created to be isolated. We're created to commune with God and with other humans. Um, in fact, just to kind of contrast this, the first time that God says something is not good is when the man is alone in 2.18, which is a contrast to all those beautiful repetitions in chapter one. God created this, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good. End of chapter six, when he's done creating, it is very good. And then 2.18, when the man's alone, it is not good. Many of you have, I've shared some of my story in different contexts. So many of you know that when I was young, due to different circumstances, I started um, having a pretty paralyzing fear of death. And I had some pretty debilitating panic attacks later in life. And so when I started to talk to my husband to work through these panic attacks and to the church, I went through redemption group and that was a key thing 
going through that. Then Michelle Quay, who read the verses, she was a key person who said to me as I was trying to unpack this paralyzing fear of death, through Michelle's help, I realized it's not that I was so much afraid of death as I was of being alone. I was afraid that maybe when I w died, when I went through this big scary thing called death, that maybe nobody, not even God, could be there for me. And I was gonna be alone forever in the dark. That was my idea. Because I don't think it's part of the normative human experience. I'm not, I know people have gone now on this side of the fall, they've gone through abuse and trauma and pain, but the original design is for us to want to share our experiences with someone else. Again, I think it's innate when you're traveling and you see a beautiful countryside, seaside, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone Park, or even when you go through times of pain, you want to share it with somebody. That's innate and normal for us. So first thing, if we want to understand what it means to be human, to be female, is we're created for community. The second thing would be to be female is to be known, well-built by the all-powerful, loving craftsmen. Robert Alter, when he um, introduces chapter two of Genesis, um, he says this quote, now after the grand choreography of resonant parallel utterances of the cosmogony, the style changes sharply. The writer and God wants us to know something is changing. As we go into chapter two and we start spiraling in on the details of the creation of man and woman, the style changes sharply. But something else changes too, the name of God. In chapter one, the name of God is Elohim. Elohim connotes a strong, all-powerful one who can just summon creation into being by divine speech, which is an awesome understanding of who God is. But then when we move into chapter two, his name is Yahweh Elohim which further enriches our understanding of who God is. Yahweh Elohim communicates a craftsman fashioning a beloved work. We see in chapter two, God is blowing life into the nostrils of Adam. He's interacting with a beloved work of art. He builds the woman out of man's rib. And if you look in verse 22, of chapter 2, where it says that he built the woman, or excuse me, your, um, your translation may say he made the woman, but according to Robert Alter, built is that same verb. You see it elsewhere used of built. So he built the woman, and that word rib is also used of architectural elements. The woman is a well-built creation lovingly fashioned by her maker. I want you to think about a time where maybe you or someone you know has been associated with somebody famous, somebody powerful and famous. Maybe they're famous, like maybe you went to a meet and greet, or maybe you got to meet like, uh, I don't know, a sports star or something like that. Kind of a trite example that I think of in my life is my oldest sister, like maybe 
15-ish years ago, she was in London and she was shopping. She was shopping for shoes and she walked into the store and there was Harrison Ford. And so she got to rub elbows with Harrison Ford and we wanted to see the pictures and we wanted to hear about what they talked about and we were so excited that she met Harrison Ford because we place significance and value on powerful people. Women, you are not just associated with a powerful person. You are well known by the all-powerful one who created you. Again, since the fall, maybe due to our flesh, our sinful nature, maybe due to the enemy and accuser, maybe just due to the principles of this world that are contrary to God, many women in the United States doubt that they are well-built creations of God, and therefore they have negative body images. As a result, they have increased eating disorders than men, depression, and significantly reduced mental and physical health. There was a study done, just completed in June of this year and published from Northwestern University, um, and it stated that poor body image is widespread among women. Over 50% of nine and 10-year-old girls feel better about themselves if they're on a diet, and only 18% of adolescents are overweight according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That same study done by Northwestern University um, did an intervention with um, improved results where the women wrote letters to their bodies to show appreciation for their bodily functions, for what their body can do. If we will just agree with what Genesis 2 says, we will have less eating disorders, depression, and better mental and physical health. There are things the women's body can do that men's cannot. And if scientific technology ever gets there, this will still be the prototype. Okay, not me, women, sorry. Um, <laughs> also, and I'm gonna, you know, science, I was raised in a medical family. Um, I'm just gonna state some things that the woman body does, but I know that it wasn't until after I had my fifth child that I could start to appreciate that monthly menstrual cycle that I have. It is my blood and my body that builds a child. That's what God created me to be able to do. And instead of showing appreciation for that, we demonize it, we complain about it, we anesthetize ourselves, we don't agree with Genesis 2. And the last thing that I think Genesis teaches us about what it means to be created in the image of God, female, is that the female is a sustainer. So in 2.18, it says, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make him a sustainer beside him. Now again, your English may translate that as help or helpmate. The original Hebrew is Azer Konegdo. And that first term, azer, connotes a strong intervention on behalf of someone else, like a military context. It's also used of God in the times that he helps Israel. Uh, the second term, konegdo, is alongside him, a counterpart to him. The woman is that strong intervener advocate whose counterpart, but alongside the male. 
God says it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a sustainer beside him in 2.18. So, right, your mind would go back to Genesis 1.27, male and female. This is when he's going to bring the other half of humankind, the female, in. But no, he does something surprising instead. You may remember, he parades the animals in front of Adam to see what he would name him. Not what I was expecting. <laughs> I think it punctuates the point that none of the animals could help sustain Adam. And Jen Wilkins, speaking to an Acts 29 church planters conference, said that as the animals paraded in front of Adam and he named each one a different name than himself, different, he was saying, not like me, not like me, not like me. So it punctuates the point that the animals can't be a sustainer for humankind because they don't get what it's like to be made of human flesh. They're not the same. So God does bring in the female. He builds the woman. And for the first time, Adam speaks when there's another human. And he says, she shall be called woman. I think it's in verse... Let me see. Yep, 23. So he says in verse 23, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And the Hebrew language changes here. The word Adam is no longer Adam, it's Ish. And the word woman is Isha. The language is teaching us something. They sound the same because man and woman are the same. They're the same stuff. They're the same flesh. Eve, part of the reason, a big part of the reason that Eve can be the sustainer for Adam is because she gets what it's like to be human. But I think we also need to ask how. How is the woman to help sustain the man? And I think the text gives us a really big clue. So 2.18 again is where God says it's not good. For the first time, something isn't good. What isn't good? The man to be alone. Right before that, in 2.17, is when God gave the man a pretty well-known verse or a rule. You might remember it. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he attached to it kind of a death sentence or you're doomed to die. Right after that, that's when he says... It's not good for the man to be alone. So the logical conclusion is that Eve is to sustain Adam in his trust and obedience to the Lord. She is supposed to help humanity remain holy to God, which, of course, is also a contrast to what actually happens. But God didn't say back in 2.5 when he says, I'm going to create a human to tend the garden and toil the soil, Soil the soil, is that right? Anyway, to take care of the soil. Um, that's not when he said, you, I need to create a woman. It was after he told or called Adam to trust him and obey him. That is part of what it means to be a biblical sustainer for humanity. Life's a lot more like a marathon than a sprint. And humankind needs sustainers. And I think the Bible has a lot of really beautiful examples of what it means to be sustainer. One of my favorite is Moses' mom. 
never says a word. And if you remember, when you open up the book of Exodus, you have God's people suffering, suffering to the point where Pharaoh said, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, throw him in the river. So Moses' mom, without ever saying anything, she throws him in a river, in a basket that she waterproofed right next to where the princess bathes. <laughs> it says in Hebrews that she did this by faith. And I'm sure as many of you know, that was God's chosen instrument to lead his people out of slavery from Egypt. And then we have Miriam. Miriam's more outspoken. She's an initiator. She's a prophetess. She's a song and praise leader. When the Pharaoh's princess is like, oh, who's going to raise and nurse this infant? Miriam steps out of the reeds and bushes and says, oh, I'll go get someone who just happens to be her and Moses' mother. She leads Israel in song and praise after God has crushed their enemy at the Red Sea. And then we have Deborah in Judges 4, who's an advocate. She's an executive director. She's a teacher and conveyor of God's truth. It says in Judges 4 that Deborah was a prophetess, a wife, and she was judging Israel. If you remember, she told Barak, go get your 10,000 men, and I want you to take them and go destroy, I think it was Jabin. He's like, oh, I can't do that unless you come. She's like, okay, fine, I'll come with you. Uh, he actually gets a tent peg through his head, but that's another story. Then we have Lydia from Acts 16. She's a rich businesswoman who used her resources to progress the gospel alongside Paul. We have Priscilla, who alongside her husband is a missionary, a church planter, a teacher, a co-worker with Paul in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. If you remember, she's the one who alongside with her husband took Apollos, the charismatic, uh, well-spoken preacher, and showed him the full counsel of God more accurately. That's in um, Acts 18 and Romans 16. And then finally in Acts 2, we have Anna, the faithful prophetess in the temple who was waiting for the promised one. And while she waited, she was devoted to prayer, worship, and fasting. We have diverse and beautiful examples of biblical female sustainers. So what are the implications? Women, you need to apply these truths to your life. You are not alone. You are created for community. You are made to be with God and others. You are well-built, known, and lovingly designed by the all-powerful craftsmen. And finally, you are a sustainer alongside men for humanity. You know, Romans 14 tells us to form our own convictions before God. That means, women, you need to pray and you need to interact with God, and you need to say, based on the gifts you've given me physically and spiritually, the resources and talents you've given me, what does it look like for me to reflect your image as sustainer to edify and build up the church? You do not need to be like so-and-so in the church. We do not need cookie cutters. Do not compare yourself. Pray and interact with God and let him show you. Also, Females, we are part of a high calling to share the gospel, the gospel of Christ and the church being one, working alongside men. So Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just as Eve got what it meant to be made of this stuff. 
and was called to be a sustainer. Was called and designed to be a sustainer. But failed. Jesus, the second Adam, also gets what it means to be made of this stuff, to be human. And he is our more perfect sustainer and head of our church. Ephes or excuse me, Hebrews 4 says, because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way was tempted as we are, let us draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need and receive help and mercy. We women, alongside men, display the gospel that Jesus and the church are one. Jesus took on flesh. He is one with humanity. And by faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That mystery is profound. And we live it out when we are living out our God-given roles. When we fully embrace and live out our God-given femininity, women, alongside men, we more richly express the gospel. Christ and the church are one. I hope we don't miss the point, the gravity of that. And finally, what are the implications for the church? Well, again, back to 218 where it says it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone in the expression of gifts and service in the church. If you don't allow a woman to use her God-given gifts, how will the church be fully sustained? In short, it won't. I just want to give one quick example. There was a study I believe, by a medical student. I believe his name was Grant Miller. I can't remember the date, but I could find it for you. And he did a study that showed a direct correlation between women being able to vote and child mort mortality decreasing by 8 to 15%. It was basically due to women being more concerned over the care of their children and better hygiene. There are things females think about that never occur to men. UNICEF today still says that the greatest way to reduce infant and child mortality is through female education. Men and women are different, and together we more fully sustain the church. As females and males uniquely use their gifts, resources, and talents for the common good, we also show a united body, and it ministers to our society for such a time as this, for this day, for this culture, this society. So, and then I have some questions that maybe would allow us to think through those implications. Um, I have women. What specifics prevent you from embracing your God-given image as a female? Women, how could you specifically more fully embrace your God-given image as a female? And church, how could you recognize and or affirm women and their gifts in informal and formal ministry efforts? And how would that more fully display the gospel? Or if you had other questions about genetics. <laughs>